Okay, so we're now starting the second second chapter of Megillah Esther, and again, we just to remind uh, from where we were last week, a few of the of the first of all, methodologically, what we want to do is look at this text, look at what's happening here, what as well as the story that's happening. What are the deep lessons, deep structures that are going on, and in particular, the way the Gemara and the Midrashim see, as well as others, see what's happening in the story. So, what we saw last week is that the opening chapter. It's called Tokvash Lachashverish. The Gemara describes it as really the power or the dynamics um, of the story based on Achashverish. And that opens up uh, to us the possibility that, in fact, a very important part of the whole story is going to be the Tikkun of Achashverish, how Achashverish gets turned from somebody susceptible to, um, to tremendous amount of destructive behaviors that could even lead to the complete destruction of Talisar, and how he's going to be turned around in the story. That's an important element that we're going to not see fully for a few chapters, but just again, lay out the picture. We, we're going to see another aspect of Achashverosh that was seen all the way through. The, the fact that he's he represents everything the HRIs, looking for money, looking for wealth, looking for fame, and most importantly, looking for approval. He cannot, he, he does not have a state of mind that is not fake. There is not prefix cut. In other words, his public demonstration of his state of mind is never genuine. It's never who he really is. He's always insecure. And that's where the Yetzirah lurks, where all the drives of passions and, and things lurk. And we saw how, therefore, Mamuchan um, manipulated him when his, when his wife wouldn't appear in public and, and essentially turned this into, made a fool out of him to the public, but in his own little ego world, managed to convince him that he was doing something noble. Um, in defending the male population. Now we start this Afar after these things. Right? So there's a gap, right? We always know that Afar versus Acharei. That means there's a gap in time. And in fact, historically, if he is Xerxes, then this is very likely to be the point of his kingdom when he went to Greece and had a disastrous war. And uh, in those intervening years, as we'll soon see how many years there are intervening, um, he's probably lost all confidence. But either way, now, if you just want to translate in a way that works, you will say, when Afashverosh had calmed down, Zohar Sebastian, you remembered Vashti's Kalasha Asas, all she'd done, his Kalasha Nigzala, all that have been decreed. But of course, as the Madrash Rabba points out, uh, the ancient rabbinic Madrashic texts point out, Ka really means like. It's like he's calmed down. He has not calmed down, right? He can't calm down. The man is. Sorry. Hello? The man is so deeply insecure and so. Um, so paranoid, he's probably spending his entire time nonstop thinking about this. Was he humiliated too much? Did he really get the right impression done? So it's like he's calmed down. He's managed to convey the impression of being calm, but he's not calm at all. That's where he is now. And that means that everybody close to him gets the fact that he can't let go of Vashti, right? But there's a problem here. He also cannot try to engage in any relationship with a woman again, because he'll just He's too insecure now and he's completely going to be humiliated. So what do the people close to him who always understand him say? So that all the guys close to him, they, one of them will say, they say this, We'll basically, as with everything with Achashverosh, we will create a facade. We will pretend, we'll play a game. And what will the game be? The game will be we're pretending we're looking for a wife. Of course, he can't live in a permanent relationship with anybody. But it doesn't matter. At least he can finally 
do whatever he wants to do and have his, his pleasures and so on, whilst creating a public veneer or some kind of a facade that makes it justifiable. Right? They're going to, we're going to have these Ephesus spread out across the entire uh, empire. And, um, Right. Sorry, it just lost place. Yeah. They're going to look for every single person, potential candidate who's good looking. To the women's section of the palace compound, which was, again, archaeologically, you can see exactly where that was, um, into the hands of Hegas, uh, Yeah. They're going to have, they're going to be there. And they're going to have all their perfumes. And this is all under the guise of pretending that we're looking for a queen. And the king and Ahasuerus thought this is an amazing idea. And of course, this is exactly what's going to give him permission to engage in a way that can never threaten him. Because anybody who's in there will never be able to report what they've seen to the public. They'll never be able to resist him. And so he gets all these, uh, this opportunity. Next, and the Medrash points out this is exactly the style of all over Tanakh. We raise a problem, we raise a situation, and then we enter the person who's going to solve it. So now, Ishiudi, or people in this case, Ishiudi, Hayab Shushan Abira, there was a Jew in Shushan, the capital, Shmai Mordechai ben Yari ben Shimi ben Kish Ishimini. His name is Yair, son of Shimi, son of Kish, a man of, of Yimini. That's quite a lot of generations to put in. It's an interesting number. And the Medrash has different ways of, of analyzing. The simplest is we're relating to the, the major families and major people he came from. And of course, the top of them all is Kish, which implies that he is, in fact, Kish is the father of Shala Melach, King Saul, who was the only king, well, the only universal king for the whole of Israel from the tribe of Binyamin. And that's where it comes from. And of course, Shala Melach, as we pointed out last week, was the man who had failed who had kept Agag in the world that now we're suffering from in this story. So many, many little hints over here. Um, but, of course, the Gemara points out, how can he be Ishihudi, a man from Yehuda, and also Ishimini, a, a man from Binyamin? <laughs> right? that's, that's a contradiction. And there's different answers given. The simplest is, Yehudi at that point was a generic term for Jew. Right? The, the southern kingdom of Yehuda uh, was the surviving kingdom. So everybody, whatever tribe they came from, was actually a Yehudi. The Gemara also says we use the word Yehudi there. We use that word in Tanakh to mean a kaifa babaydazara, somebody who unifies God's name in the world and denies idolatry. Okay, so that's going to have some, some force. The other aspect, it could be part of his family. He had lineage from Yehuda, apart from Binyamin. And why is that relevant? Because that was always the issue. How can we keep the Jewish people united? How can we keep particularly Yehuda and Binyamin? So you'll see that David HaMalach, Right. Or even though, even though he's been told he's going to be king by the prophet, by the Nabi Shmuel, by the prophet Samuel, he won't accept the kingship until everybody can unite around him and particularly the tribe of Binyamin. So something about Yehuda and Binyamin have to be together. And so he is married to Michal, son of, daughter of Shol. He makes the Beis Hamikdash, he picks Yerushalayim because it's exactly between Binyamin and Yehuda. And in fact, the Beis Hamikdash itself lies exactly between these two tribes. So there's an implication here that we can only survive the challenges we're facing if we can unify all the parts of the Jewish people. And we're going to see that will, that will of course, become central. So long as we're fragmented, we are vulnerable to destruction. Now, at this moment, 
nothing has actually happened that will destroy us. But we're in the shadow of a national catastrophe. We're still, according to the Gemara, in the Chorban, we're still the base of nature have been destroyed. And we're going to see that in the very next person, why this is so important that he's trying to link Yehudah and Benyamin. Because Ashahogla Yerushalayim, who had been exiled from Yerushalayim, with the exile that had been exiled, all the way back to Yechonia, king of Yehudah, who had been exiled by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. How many times do you have to mention the word exiled in one posse? And there's different interpretations in the Gemara Medrash. But one is this, that he in fact gone into exile twice. What was the story? He'd originally been a part of the original exile, and then when, when they'd given permission, Kairos should give him permission to start the rebuilding in Yerushalayim, which was between Yehuda and Binyamin, Ish Yehudi, Ish Yemini. He'd gone back there with them. And we see in, in, in Ezra that um, the story of, of indeed a Mordechai. And he goes back. And now we remember the story there is that the locals created a problem. You know, what is this uh, Jewish nationalism coming into the land and taking away from the locals here? Right? That something's never changed in history. And we need a fight, and we're not only have Yerushalayim, we can't have Jerusalem. And in fact, the international community, the, the, the Persian Empire in those days, their, their United Nations blocked um, the Jewish people from building their base of Mikdash. And Mordechai came back. He went through the second exile in order to lobby for the rebuilding of Yerushalayim. So you would call him the, the pro-Israel lobby or the Jewish lobby, like in modern day terms. But either way, that means, that implies, and this is something we've seen as a backdrop of the entire story. Shushan is, is trying to become the alternative to Yerushalayim. That's what we saw that, that they were celebrating the party. Oh, the 70-year prophecy has come to pass. We're not being rebuilt. The only two places called Bira are Yerushalayim, where the base of Mikdash is, and Shushan Habira, and so on and so forth. All the little hints that we had last time that he's wearing the Kayan Godel's clothing, high priest clothing. By the way, amazingly enough, the link between the whole Purim story and the building based Amikdash is absolutely central because this is a story of a war against an Amalekite attempt to destroy us. And the Aloha is you got to first get rid of Amalek and then can build the base Amikdash. The Rambam codifies that exactly in that order. But most importantly, we say, just there's a parallel between the way that Mishnechas of Mamatim the Simcha, as Av comes in, you drop Simcha, our Adar comes in, you increase the Simcha. So Av is all about the, the Chorban and destruction, and Adar is all about joy, but obviously there's a parallel. Somehow the story of Purim is the story that's going to carry us through to the full building of the base of Mikdash in this story and its message in the future. And this is something we saw last time. The Yalkut Shimani quotes the idea that in the future, all the books of Tanakh will be gone, but Purim is the one that drives us all the way into Odom all the way to everything. So we're picking up some amazing hints and little subtleties here that are indicating there's something new. We don't even have a problem yet of Haman, and we're already dealing with the real issue, which is that in the world of Ahasuerus, how do you rebuild the base of English? In the world of a fellow so insecure and so threatened, how is he ever going to allow the Jewish people properly back and build a house of a college Baruch that will just make him renegade into number two? It seems that we're stuck in exile so long as we're left with Ahasuerus the way he is. And Mordechai has within him some of the answers. Now, the Oymenes, now, of course, the story is not about Mordechai at this stage. It's about what's happening next. He has been looking after Hadassah. She is Esther. So which is she? So the Gemara discusses which is a Persian name, which is a Jewish name. Most opinions seem to say that Esther is the Persian name. 
which actually makes sense because it's a kind of, it was a popular name of Persians in those days. Some even in the non-Jewish world, they used Ishtar, which was actually a name of a, what they believed was a goddess. And the Jews changed it to have a similar name, but wasn't the same. Esther Bastoda, because she, though not she didn't have in the past, she has no father and mother, which implies she's never had. Her essence is that she doesn't have. And the Gemara, in fact, says, yeah, that means that her father died straight after conception, her mother straight after birth. Why is that important? And she's very beautiful. And when her father and mother died, Mordechai took her as a daughter. There is, of course, a very famous view in the Gemara that that can also be read as a wife, right? Whichever one it is, certainly the only thing she has in life is Mordechai. It was when they heard the uh, words of the king and his law. Uve Kabbets Naris Rabbi and when many of them were gathered to Shushan. Now the words here are very subtle, but between the lines you can pick up something very important. Obviously, as the Gemara says, the Medrash brings, nobody was coming forward. I'm going to for Tati's decree. No, everybody understands what a monster this guy is. Uh, and certainly self-respecting women were not volunteering. And, and we compare that to David Hamelach, who, who even he wasn't necessarily looking for a wife, everybody was, was lining up for him. But now they have to be gathered forcibly. So there's a second, first there's a proclamation, no one comes. Then they start really gathering everybody. To shush on the bira, she was taken. Again, very clear. There's no volunteering here. She's, they go into all the, all the houses and they find her. And immediately this man who's in charge of this operation sees something about this woman, about Esther, she just finds favor in his eyes. By the way, this is very, very similar to another person in Tanakh who always finds favor in everybody's eyes, and that's Yosef Atzadik. Also is taken against his will. Also is placed in the palace. And there's many, many hints we're going to see through the story, but both Mordechai and Esther end up playing some very similar roles to Yosef. Now, by the way, that's not a coincidence because they're both B'nai Rachel. They're all children of Rachel Imein. And in fact, Every fight the Jewish people ever have against Amalek is always done through the children of Rachel. In the Midbar, in the desert, the first attack, who has to go and fight them? Yahushua, the nun from Ephraim, from Yosef. Later on, it's Shaul Amalek. King Shaul has to go and fight them. David Amalek doesn't really have any particular instructions to fight Amalek. In this story, it's going to be Mordechai and Esther. Long term, we talk here, the Medrash talks even generally to get out of the Golis, the exile of Esau's descendants is the same family. It means Yosef, Moshiach ben Yosef. So there's something about that lineage, something going back to Rachel Imenu, right? There's going to Rachel, right? It's going to be central in the battle against Amalek. What is it? So we're going to see a little aspect of it and a first attempt at an understanding that will emerge in this parak in this chapter. And as we're going to see our natural assumption about it, it's going to be wrong. But I'll give you the clue right now. It's going to be the word sneers, right? Which generally is translated as modesty. And we're going to see that the natural, this chapter looks like she's incredibly modest in one understanding of sneers. But we're later going to discover the word sneers really means holding something back in reserve. Something is hidden that can emerge. And that's what the very name Esther means, that which is concealed, waiting to emerge. Even the Hadassah, right, which we know in Halacha, the Hadass plant that you um, that you use on on, on, uh, on Sukkot, so it's, it's, it's covered by leaves on all sides, so it's something hidden. Okay, 
But let's let's get on with this and see there's so many deep things happening. We're just touching lots of surfaces over here, but we'll be able to uncover some aspects. Again, anyone who's got a question, just feel free to, to unmute questions or comments or anything's not clear. Okay, so um, she's got, she found this favor, and she refuses to, uh, she, she, uh, um, she doesn't want to have any of this. Um, sorry, so he hurried. So he, he hurried. He was mavile. He, he, like a behola, like a rush. He rushed Tamrukal. So I'm getting in a second to what she does. First, he's just trying to rush all this, all the, all the uh, fragrances and all the cosmetics. And he's already given her the seven maid servants that you normally get from for royalty. In other words, he's skipping the queue. This one is the one the king has to get to. There's something about this one is different to everybody else. And of course, the Gemara picks at the remez of the number seven. She particularly picked seven. She wants to say, you know what, stop at seven because she wanted to use one for each day of the week so she could keep Shabbos. So there's hints going on. It's never said explicitly, but it's like many of the things in the story is being hinted at. Uh, but, but now, and, um, and so then he moves her with all of these uh, maid servants to the best part of the, of the women's quarter. Now you want to know the only thing we know about Esther at this stage is she will not tell who her people are, anything about her birth. And by the way, it's in this sense, there's a benefit to the fact that she has no family and nobody knows who she is. They can't trace her. They can't look in the records. They can't, you know, can everybody, you know, who your parents, I don't have any parents. She's got nothing. So she's this mystery. But Mordechai had told her she cannot. Uh, and again, if you're just looking at this story, you think she's just this very obedient princess, or not princess, no, she's nothing. She has no personality, no identity. She's a blank slate. And Mordechai is just imposes upon her this silence. Again, later in the story, we'll see this is not the case. But in a moment, this is how it will appear. And every day Mordechai is going there outside the courtyard. He wants to know how is she at peace, what's happening. And by the way, the magistrate says, you go looking after, you care so much about one person, one captive effectively, you'll eventually come to lead the Jewish people. Teach us a deep lesson that we'll see play out later in the Megillah. Mordechai, if you'd have asked Mordechai at this stage what's the most important things he's done in life, He's fought for Kandi. So he's a knobby. He's on the Sanhedrin. He's a prophet. He's, he's one of the chief judges. He's fighting for the building of the base. And he cares about this niece who he's raised. Maybe it's his own wife. But that, the way he cares about it, that's the most central thing of his life. And the manager says, yes. So often we're going to see this theme. Things you don't think are important are the things that change everything. We'll see that come out later on. In fact, that's going to end up becoming, if not the central theme, one of the sub parts of the main Yes, I mean, principally, and time again. So when it came to each girl's turn to, to be, to have the treatment they'd had, because that is how the, the prescription was. Six months of the oil, myrrh treatment. You can see what they're trying to do here. They're literally uh, trying to, and know what they're, they're trying to create the most incredible experiences of the king. Six months in perfumes of Samruka and Noshim and all the cosmetics. And she could come into the king like this. Whatever she wanted, right? She wanted to come with musical instruments, with anything. That's what they would do. This was to give Achashverosh his 
entree into, into womanhood in a way that will just be full of, he'll see them once and that's it. Um, this other comes, she comes in the evening, but when Baiki Shabbat in the morning, she goes, base Shani to a second harm. So she never goes back to the first one. So nobody knew will ever know anything about Dachashreirush. This is again, you see the twistedness of his mind and the power of his paranoia and the way they manipulate this entire thing as a game around him. Of course, there's no interest in ever seeing this was Queens. He's not even trying, but he just one not here, next over there. And never to be seen again. Um, never allowed again to the king. The king particularly desires and calls her by name. And when it comes to Esther, who's the daughter of Abichayel, the uncle of Mordechai, again, Doid can be multiple relations. So, so, taking her as a daughter, or possibly as a wife, to come. She did not bring anything. There is no apparent assertion of herself at all. Once again, Esther finds some kind of charm, something that brings a liking beyond anything that's automatically deserved. To have something happens that, that makes people feel not threatened, that makes them willing to be vulnerable, and that's what happens. She has, again, just like Yosef Atabi. She's taken. She doesn't go herself. She's taken out base of that month is important. Okay, but either way, in the seventh year of his king. So now we realize there's been a four-year gap, or at least a three-year gap, between the first incidents and the beginning of this process. But yeah, he loved him more than all the women, but usually Noshim means married women. There's charm and there's kindness in front of him, like from all the unmarried women, never married women. He immediately changes. And what was a facade becomes real. Something happens to Achashverosh. And what was never intended to be real, he doesn't bother seeing anybody else. This is her. Puts the crown on her head and uh, immediately makes a queen. Bingo! The thing that was never meant to happen happens. The Gemara says something amazing. These rabbis says in the Gemara in Megillah that why do we describe us better than all the married women and there's the virgins and what's going on? It's whatever he wanted to imagine. She's someone with experience. She's someone fresh. He could see. In, in other words, she's so well. This one with understanding the Gemara. She's so non-assertive that he has no threat whatsoever. She's whatever he wants. To be, so Achashverosh feels completely confident. It's like she's coming. Something about her is so non-threatening that he's the, she's the only person Achashverosh can imagine himself with. And he immediately sees this could be it. This is amazing. This is something I can have. Now, of course, but the problem is her very non-assertion will suddenly become an issue for him. I'll tell you soon what the Lilligan says here, because this is will, will completely change our whole understanding of everything. But let's just go a little bit further. Now comes something strange. All, what appears to be a set of non-sequiturs here. But yeah, the king makes a great party for all Saravabodah, for all his officers and servants. as Mishra Esther. It's called the Esther party. A tax break. That's what he's been doing from the beginning, throwing parties and cutting taxes. Right? Also, but you turn masses go the other way, and then he's giving out welfare. And it's like a modern democratic leader will cut the taxes and somehow will raise all the spending. Someone else will worry about the debts later. And then he gathers more women. What? 
I thought you just finally found your queen. A Mordechai Yeshim Shaman, a Mordechai sitting at the king's, what's that got to do with anything? Esther, tell who she is. What are these things got to do with one another? Esther does everything Mordechai says. Just that way she was with him. Now let's pause and see what the Gemara says. The Gemara says, you see, Esther's non-assertion is fantastic, but part of it is she's not, is the very fact that she doesn't come with an already existing strong identity. So nobody knows who she is. In the beginning for Ahasuerus, that's fantastic. But then remember who Ahasuerus is, Mr. Paranoid. And he starts thinking, one second, what's going on? Why is she not revealing who she is? Could there be a plot here? Is there something that if I discover it will destroy me? And in his paranoia, he's pushing, he's saying, I, I know, maybe she's from some disgraced, uh, you know, uh, race. And she thinks everyone will get, be very, it'll be very unpopular if they all discover she's. So I'll make her the most popular person in the whole town. We will have Esther parties, Esther tax breaks, Esther welfare states, Esther this, Esther that, Esther the other. Doesn't work. And then what's Mordechai Yeshub Shama? He calls Mordechai and says, come on, you're the Jewish guy who's always got great advice. Let me ask you this. I've got this bit of a problem. What would you say about a woman who refuses to tell who she is? Of course, Mordechai, he knows exactly what's going on. He wants to give her relief. He says, You want to get a jealous? Bring the other women in. You'll see. She'll talk. right? And of course, within that, there are many dimensions. She's really a spy. She can't afford anybody else to be in there. right? So, of course, he's giving Esther a break. And that's the copy. So once you realize that the whole story suddenly flows, the Megillah is often written like this. It says things. And it's giving you a little hint that there's a deeper story here. And once you pick it up, once Chazal give it to us, the whole thing makes sense. So there's this whole little crisis happening in Ahasuerus' world. And this is going to be essential to the story on many, many, many levels because Ahasuerus is going to be obsessed with getting Esther to reveal the truth. And she's going to hold it in until the exact moment when this revelation will transform him. And in doing so, say kindness, I'll say the Jewish people. But right now, it's in reserve. Right now, it's in a place that's near us. Right now, he's not fit to see it. And this, by the way, the Gemara says, Rachel Imenu is the Tzniyas. The lineage is Rachel Imenu. Rachel, our mother, she was so tzanua, so modest. Why? And he tells the story, the very famous story of Yaakov Avinu. When Yaakov came to Novon's house, so he sees her straight away and he says, don't worry. He says, he tells her, they, they see each other, they see prophetically or directly, whatever it is, they see there's something meant to be here, so strong. And she says, according to the Madras, yeah, but you can't, you'll never get past my father. He says, ah, he tells her that I'm, I'm your father's brother. And the Gemara says, of course, they knew who they were, cousins, right? But he's saying, I can outsmart him in crookedness. Oh, you can't because he's going to put the older daughter, you'll never let us marry. And of course, that's why they make signs and codes between them. Nevertheless, the plan fails. The Yaakov works, he's ready to sit down and marry her. And, and during the feast, so there's no chance for anyone to intervene, uh, Lovon quickly puts the veiled woman over there. He's hidden, locked Rachel up in the house. It Leo's, in fact, sitting there, the sister. And on the way, Rachel realizes she's powerless to do anything. So she whispers in Leo's ear and she says, we have code words. Here they are, right? Because maybe, uh, why can I ask, you know, maybe they halakhically already get married or by the convention of the town, they already married. It would be too late. Didn't want to embarrass her. Who knows? I mean, not who knows. This is a discussion. But the point is that that's called sneers, the Gemara says, modesty, carrying about the other one's dignity. And now you, you can ask, why is that so modest? I was so modest about that. They just whisper in the ear and say, by the way, it won't work because we've got codes. 
right? Yaakov and I have a code that's going to fail, right? So I once heard, uh, I quoted last time, Rick Weinberg, who's sure I used a lot to understand the Megillah. He said, and amazingly, he said, no, that would reveal to Lavan the depth of relationship to her and Yaakov. And that would cheapen the relationship. And so she's holding it hidden, even if she'll suffer as a result, because there must be the right time for it to emerge and the right place in the right context. It's not for everybody to see. And that's the essence of Tzimius. There are certain things that must be held in reserve, waiting their moment to be revealed. It's not just submissiveness. It's something much more powerful than that. And we see that with all the other examples. The Gemara goes down the lineage of Rachel, Shalom, and of King Saul, who didn't reveal that he'd already been told he's going to be king. Right? Okay. So, but again, it's not the right moment. It's not the right time. Somebody has to reveal everything, every moment to everybody is, is somebody who misses the whole concept of what Sneas is. There's things that are so precious and so vulnerable, they must be held in reserve. And those people who are going to appreciate that depth will eventually bring them out when the time and the place is right. And this is the power of what Esther is right now. And it's creating a little crisis for Ahasuerush. But okay, everything's moved into position. She's in position. Now we've got to get one more in position too. By the way, now I'll tell you the Vilna Gaon. The Vilna Gaon is an incredible thing. He has different levels of the, of the of explanation of the Megillah. He has a Pshat, a straightforward understanding. And then he has the Derech Remes, the hinted level of understanding. And in the hinted level of understanding, um, he says, he has, it says that, as I said last time, Ahasuerus is like the Yet Sahara. It's like all the negative impulses of of the human brain, the reptilian brain, that all the kind of stuff that we have. And Vashti and is like the body, like the Vashti literally means the windpipe. She's like, the, she behaves exactly like the body does, that's totally subject to all the winds of the primitive drives of the human. And so she's going along with this whole also eating, drinking party, about to make herself terribly undignified. And at a certain moment, she turns around and realizes one second, this is all animalistic. This is tails and scales. And she rejects it, but it's too late. By that point, the body can no longer resist. It just gets killed by, by the, the very yates or the very drives that have, that have taken it too far. Esther is like the body that follows the Mishama, follows its soul. It's an incredible thing. The person can have all their neural, neural networks with all the mess of human behavior, with all the insecurities and fears that need medicating and drugs and short-term, more money and more holidays and more this and more that. They can't ever quite medicate the deep insecurities. That's, that's what Vashti is. Esther is the body that switches. And its true husband or true relationship was with Mordechai, who represents the Neshama. And I'll see how this works. So there's a part of us can switch and say, you know what? I'm not trying to control my little world. I'm trying to hand my world over to God and his will. And I'm going to listen to the part of me that, that is deeply connected to God's will. I want to listen to that voice. And at that moment, the, the negative drives are trying to find their way in. They don't even speak in the brain. It's like they're speaking to a stranger. It's like you don't hear them anymore. A person says the Chobos Halvavos, who's in a place of real trust of Hashem, doesn't hear the ordinary voices of the animalistic drives. They actually go silent inside them. They don't hear their insecurities. They're not trying to control anything. They're not like Ahasuerus lost in this world of control and paranoia and Esther lost, and Abashi lost in this world of paranoia that could be destroyed. They're actually impervious to it. And in the right time, they will eventually be able to rectify those drives too. So this is unbelievable. You really hear the resonance with these characters and, and they're playing roles that occur inside each one of us. 
Let's just finish the chapter. By Yom in those days, Mordechai Yeshu B'Shamelech. So Mordechai, who represents the Mishan, right? He's sitting at the king's gate, the, the gate of the king. Kotzav, big son of Sarah, This, of course, the last time we had a Kotzav, someone getting angry, was when Paro got angry with his servants and that allowed Yosef to rise up. This time it's the other way around. The servants, so this Medrashalik says, as a kid, gets angry with the king, but that's also going to allow Mordechai to rise up and ask them. They want to send their hand against King Ahasuerus. There's many times the word sending hand is used in Tanakh, but the first one goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden story. Again, I've pointed out, I'm not going to go through it in depth now, but another time we will point out in Yitzhashem how this story links all the way back to the Garden of Eden. We saw a few hints last week. Just remember this one this week. And as a shame, in future weeks, we'll discuss this a little bit more. But Yivada Adovana Mordechai was known to Mordechai. But Yagin Lasta Malka, he told us to the queen. But Toy Master Lamanach Hashem Mordechai, she told the king in the name of Mordechai, from which you have the famous teaching, whoever says in the name of the person they got it from brings redemption to the world. But Yivak Vukashdava was sought. They looked on the patrolists and the guard. They found a time when they were, they were not there and covering for one another. Um, but Yimotse, and it was found by Talush Nemalates, and they were both hung on the tree. It is recorded in the chronicles before the king. And of course, we know how this is. All these different elements are going to play themselves out in the seventh chapter of this, of this story. So now we've moved everybody into position. Esther is in position. Ahasuerus has made her queen and then suddenly become deeply insecure about her. Mordechai is in position. And now we're ready. As exactly everything about Miguelez. is. The solutions are all there before the problems even begin. We think we're working directly on how to bring the base of back. We are, but it needs a problem first that's going to shatter the entire story. And only when that problem brings about all the changes it brings, can we actually bring the base of We cannot bring the base of even with Esther there, even with Mordechai there, until Haman enters the scene. Amazing. Anyway, that is uh, some of the, some of the beautiful ideas that could come out through the Gemara, through the Midrashim, through some of the Mafrashim, especially the Nagan. And do we see how Are there any questions in our last few minutes over here? If you do want to ask, you have to unmute yourselves. If not, then uh, happy to finish right over here. Okay, I hope this has been a, a fabulous journey through the pack. The beginning is just so incredible. And as Hashem next week, we're going to, well, we'll see. We'll see there's layer, the layers build upon each other in each, uh, in each chapter, in each paragraph. And suddenly hints that in one come back into the other and we start to pick up an entire different dimension to this whole thing. But we're laying some very important foundations over here, which will all become central as the story goes on. And as we learn from here, um, how to bring about Gula, actually how to literally bring redemption to the whole world. Hashem shall us all to be able to do so. We'll see whoever wants to be with us next week as Hashem. See you all. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you so much, Karen.